Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we're celebrating Easter Sunday and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. This week, Pastor Tim will bring us a message that reminds us of the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in John 20. Before we go there, uh, let me just say thank you to, uh, so who was, who was around yesterday for Palooza? A, a bunch of you. Um, now, uh, who, who were our volunteers yesterday? I know you're, you don't want applause for it, but um, yeah, we're going to, uh, honestly, I was, I was, uh, I was blown away by how many of you um, not just showed up to help, but like you fully embodied uh, who this church is and kind of the heart of our church. And, um, and we extended our arms to our community in just a really beautiful way. And I am uh, humbled by you all and, uh, and, so, and thankful. It was a, it's the Saturday before Easter. There's a lot of things you could have been doing, but uh, sir, you, you all or many of you all showed up to serve. And uh, I'm, I'm highly impressed and humbled by that. Um, but we got a sermon this morning. Uh, we're going to be in John 20. Uh, we're going to begin how we begin every Sunday, by, uh, reading, by reading Scripture. Um, there are four historical accounts of the Easter moment. Uh, John records the account that's my personal favorite of, this, uh, of the Easter story. I've been thinking a lot about what to share. Um, I had, uh, so over the last week or so, I did a 21-hour drive down to Florida, and then a 23-hour drive back from Florida, and so I earned my dad's stripes. Uh, but I, during that, during the drive, I was thinking a lot about, okay, what do you share? Um, I, the questions I'm asking a lot on Easter are always, okay, as I think back. So I've been a, I've been a pastor now for 15 years, which means I've preached 15 Easter sermons, and uh, I'm always asking the question, okay, what is the fresh word God would have for us this year? Um, the story itself is the greatest story ever told. It's a story we should hear again and again and again, not just on Easter. But what is the, like, what else is God having, like, where, where does God want to take the story with us? Um, as I think back, so often I'm asking, okay, if I think back on the last year, uh, what feels urgent or relevant to speak on as we think back on the last year? Um, as I think back on just the last couple weeks, um, or the life of our community together, what feels like a fresh word. Uh, as I examine my own life, what feels fresh? And so um, what I want to do is I want to read the Easter story with you all once again. And, uh, and then I want to share another story that uh, I, it just kept coming back and I, I've reflected on it um, for a long time now. And, uh, and I want to so share another story. It's not the Easter story, but I think what you'll see is it, it illuminates the Easter story in some really beautiful ways. Um, and so hopefully uh, we can look at that. And then also, where's Tierra? Oh, she's in the back. Tierra asked me to somehow work into an Easter message, Tom Brady and almsgiving. Challenge accepted. All right, John 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
He bent over and looked at the stri- in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, and he went in straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been, had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen, in case you cared. Uh, finally, the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went inside. I love the, like, in the midst of the greatest story ever told, you still have, like, this, like, I'm faster than you, Peter, uh, moment in the story. I, I, I love that little detail. Um, finally, the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood out Side the tomb, crying. Let's pause there. Um, let's pause in this moment. Uh, so if you're picturing the story, you've got the disciples running back now. Um, the, their rabbi has been killed, and, uh, and they, like, they don't see where he is. He's not in the tomb. So they run away. Uh, and then you've got Mary Magdalene at the, at the tomb, crying. Um, she's, she's at the tomb, crying. It's, it's really important to remember on Easter Sunday um, that before Easter meets us as, you know, death is lost, it's sting, uh, the tomb is empty, celebration. Um, before Easter meets us there, it begins with lament. Uh, I think the journey of Holy Week is a really important journey for that reason, that we actually go through uh, Thursday and Friday and Saturday um, because it is in that that we see the fullness of life. It's in the death that we see the fullness of life. Um, it's, it's really important to remember that this story meets us in the darkest moments. Uh, this moment for Mary Magdalene and for the disciples, but especially for Mary Magdalene, she's at the tomb weeping. Her friend has, has died. Uh, this, to her, feels like an ending. And uh, as I thought back on the last uh, year or so, um, I feel like we should at least acknowledge that. There's been a lot of death over the last year, right, as a culture, um, and almost so much death that uh, it, like, ceases to become front-page news after a while. The media outlets just kind of move on because, like, there's got to be other stories, and so um, other stories, like the, the whole, like, slap incident, like, those capture our attention because we've got to move on, but, um, but the, the story of Ukraine... Uh, the, the war in Ukraine is still happening, right? still happening, and yet m- many media outlets are moving on. Um, and uh, even closer to home, uh, in a New York subway just this last week, another uh, senseless act of violence. And then even closer to home in Grand Rapids, um, actually just a couple blocks from my home, uh, there was another uh, a tragedy, a tragic loss of life. And um, it took 48 hours, I, I, was, I was waiting for it, 48 hours for that event to turn into this place where we divide along our political lines and start yelling at each other about politics. I get it. But bef- before we go there, I think it's really important that we simply, uh, we simply grieve. We simply grieve. Um, it's, I think it's important as humans that we do that, that we, that, um, that, that we actually acknowledge it. Uh, Mary comes to the tomb and her friend, her rabbi, her teacher, the one that, that like, all of her hopes and dreams were, like, rested in, uh, he's not there. This is what Mary's feeling. Um, there's a line from Shakespeare in the fifth act of Macbeth. Uh, Shakespeare writes these words. He says, the way to dusty death, out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. This is what the disciples and Mary feel in that moment. If, if, this, if, if that's how the story ends, if this is where the story ends, then, 
then what Shakespeare writes in Macbeth is true, isn't it? Like if death is the final word, if that's how it all ends, at a cosmic level, at, like a, at a cosmic level, if in the end what happens is they throw us in, in, a, in a hole in the ground and we slowly decay or they cremate our bodies uh, and we slowly, uh, like if that's the end, that's a, uh, that is an, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. If at a very personal level, uh, if our lives simply are this short little blip of time, if that's it, um, if, if that's it, then all of the love, all of the laughs, all of the tears, all of the embraces, all of the work and the stress, all of the accomplishments, um, all of the, the achievements and the, the kisses, and all of it is worthless. It's senseless. It's, it's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Is that the story? I have to wonder what Mary, if that's what she's feeling in this moment, if there is a senselessness to death, a senselessness to it. Um, and if this is it, then life really doesn't truly matter, not ultimately, at least. Um, that's why I love the detail that it's Mary Magdalene who's the first at the tomb. Uh, Mary Magdalene is one of my favorite uh, heroes of the scriptures. Uh, Mary Magdalene is the first person at the tomb. A little bit of backstory on Mary Magdalene. Um, we first bump into her, we first meet her in Luke chapter 8. Uh, Luke tells us that Jesus has 12 male uh, disciples, and then there are a handful of women who are following Jesus also. They're also disciples. Um, we know that because the language that's used of these women is that they sit at the feet of Rabbi Jesus, which is a very rabbinical, um, a, a, you would sit at the feet of your rabbi. That's a, an idi- a cultural idiom. Now, um, in a culture where only men could be disciples, they're, they're not explicitly said that, but we, we, Mary, is one, Mary Magdalene is one of the ladies who's following Jesus. Now, her story begins in Luke 8 when she is, Jesus meets her uh, and when Jesus meets her, we are told in the story that she, from a city called Magdala, is, uh, is suffering with seven demons in her. Um, seven demons in her. Um, Mary's following Jesus, uh, and when Jesus, or when Jesus meets Mary, Mary's at her lowest moment. She's alone. Uh, people, I imagine, are a bit scared of her. I, I imagine uh, they've created some stories about Mary Magdalene. I'll tell you why she's got seven demons. Like, I imagine that they're, they're doing that. Uh, in fact, uh, about 600 years after this incident, uh, in the year 591, 591, 600 years after Mary Magdalene uh, has died, um, there is a, a rumor that emerges about Mary Magdalene that she was a prostitute. Anybody hear that rumor? Um, it was a, if these are the stories that they're telling 600 years after she died, what stories were being passed around about Mary Magdalene while she's living? I wonder what she's thinking about as she's uh, by the tomb. I wonder if she's thinking about the words that people said to her about her. I wonder what she's thinking about. Um, I wonder if she's recalling some of the insults that people have said about her. But as I was driving and kind of reflecting on this story, um, one of the things that I it really jarred me was, I wonder if, I wonder what story of Jesus she was thinking about. There's a lot of good stories about Jesus that she experienced, but I wonder which one was freshest in her mind in that moment. I want to propose to you that maybe it's Luke chapter 15. If you have a Bible, turn to me to Luke 15. I want to read you a story, read with you a story. Um, story comes a few years before Easter, Sun, before Easter Sunday, but a few years 
uh, or shortly after Mary Magdalene is first cured of her, uh, like she's first, the demons are set free. Like she's first set free. Um, so it's a few years, a few uh, shortly after Mary starts following Jesus, but a couple years before Easter. Um, now for some context, Luke 15 verse 1, we read what prompts Jesus to tell the story. This is what prompts the story. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers, the Pharisees are the religious leaders, and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So that's, that's the context. Now, um, if you've been journeying with us at all over the last few months, we've been in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. We talked a lot about how a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the tax collectors were the social outcasts. They were the guys who worked with the enemies, Rome, to collect taxes from your neighbors, your friends. They were Jews who worked with the enemies. They're the bad guys. So when you read here that the Pharisees are scoffing, the religious leaders are scoffing because tax collectors are found. Jesus, Jesus, you're eating with tax collectors? But then you have this line, uh, tax collectors and sinners, and sinners. You know, you know why else they're mad? They're mad that Mary's there. We know Mary. She's got a backstory. We remember Mary. We remember Mary Magdalene. She's a sinner. She must have done something to cause the seven demons. She must have done something. We know Mary. Jesus, they're mad that Jesus is eating with people like Mary. Uh, and to the, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, why would Jesus be wasting his time with Mary? There's important people you could be talking to, Jesus. Why waste your time with Mary? Um, every once in a while, by the way, I, uh, I'll meet someone who will, who will say something along the lines of, I can't follow Jesus because I had a bad experience with religious people. Have you ever felt that way? Like, I can't. It's hard to follow Jesus because somebody in the church was supposed to be a Jesus follower and they weren't very kind. Um, I think it's really important in those moments to remember that Jesus also had a pretty bad experience with religious people. Ultimately, they'll end up killing him. Uh, this is the story. Um, now, it's uh, these people who are mad because Jesus is hanging out with Mary and Matthew, and it's in response to this accusation that Jesus tells three stories. Two of them are famous. One of them we almost always read right over. It's the one we almost read right over that I want to focus in on just for a few minutes together. Um, but the first story is pretty famous. The first is about a shepherd, the parable of the, the lost sheep. Uh, a shepherd has 100 sheep, one leaves, uh, and the shepherd leaves the, the 99 who are with him behind to find the lost sheep. The good shepherd story. Uh, the third, so that's the first story. The third story, even more famous, maybe the greatest story, uh, maybe the greatest story Jesus told. It's a brilliant parable of, uh, often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. Um, there's a dad, he's got two boys. One of his boys says, I want all of your wealth now. Give me my inheritance now. He then goes off, he squanders the wealth, he parties it up. He comes home because he's broke. Feels like a relevant story. Uh, he comes home, he's broke, and, uh, and so he comes home and dad meets him with open arms. It's a beautiful story. There's a story sandwiched in between those two stories that we often will read right past, either to, to focus in on the first story or to, to really focus in on the last story. Um, but it's this little story in the middle that I find really interesting. And I wonder if this is a story of Mary Magdalene. She's, I mean, it's only a few chapters ago that Jesus invites her to follow him. So this is the story, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? 
And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God, of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The religious, that's the story, that's the whole story. Um, the religious leaders don't like that Jesus is hanging around with people like Matthew and Mary, tax collectors and sinners. Uh, they're angry that he's eating with them. And in response, Jesus tells three stories. This is one of the stories. It's only a handful of lines, and it does feel underwhelming, doesn't it? Like a little bit underwhelming compared to the other two stories. It feels underwhelming. What's going on in the story? Now, um, Jesus, when he refers to a silver coin in the parable, uh, there's really only one silver coin that uh, existed in the day. It was what was known as a drachma. Um, I got a replica drachma, but you're not going to be able to see it. Um, It had Caesar Augustus, the emperor's image on one end. Uh, It looks about the size of a dime, right? It's about the size of a dime. Uh, This is what Jesus is referring to, a drachma. Uh, A drachma is uh, roughly today, um, well, it's been replaced by the euro, um, but uh, a couple years ago before they replaced it by the euro, it was about a dollar. So it's worth about a buck, um, actually a dollar eight to be specific, a dollar eight. Now it's worth a fraction of a fraction of a penny. Um, but a drachma's, a drachma's lost value. In Jesus' day, uh, a drachma, so when he tells the story of the lady who searches for a coin, a drachma was worth approximately $20. So still not a, not a, a huge amount of money, but 20 bucks was about the average day's wage of her day. So this is, at the end of a day, you work hard all day, you get one drachma. This lady, we are told, has 10 drachmas. She loses one of her drachmas. And so she searches everywhere so she can get her one drachma back. Now, there is a traditional understanding of the story that I think misses the point. The traditional understanding of the story goes like this. We have a poor lady. She has 10 coins, approximately $200 or so. Uh, It's her life savings. It's all she has. So she loses a tenth of it. And because it's that, and that's significant because it's her life savings. She loses a tenth of her life savings. And the point of the story then is, traditionally, is that if she loses a coin, this tenth of her savings, she has to sweep the house to find it because she's poor. Uh, she needs the coin to survive. Anybody ever hear the parable explained that way? Or read the parable and made some assumptions? Um, this is the interpretation I had my whole life, honestly. Like, that's what I read. I read the story, and I'm like, okay, this is a poor lady. She loses a tenth of her savings. So she sweeps everything to find it because the coin is valuable. The coin is worth something to her. She only has, she only, it's one-tenth of what she has. But if you ask a few questions about the parable, like, this is the work we do every week, right? We ask a few questions. We do the, like, we, we actually... Uh, Jesus, uh, or the scriptures say that we are to love our, the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our strength, and with all of our minds. It's important that we think. So um, let me ask a few questions about the parable and see if um, maybe you see some of the holes that start popping into that traditional understanding. First, is it significant that it's a woman who loses the coin? I guess this is the first question. The other two parables about men this parable is about a woman. Is that intentional? Why does Jesus change genders on the, on the story? Why doesn't he stick with a parable of all men? Is it significant? According to the traditional reading of the parable, that's not significant at all. You could have a man, if it's one-tenth of his savings and he loses it, okay, well, that's, that makes total sense. It doesn't change the story at all. So is it significant that in the story that Jesus tells, it's a woman who loses the coin? Second question. Is it significant that it's a silver coin, that it's a drachma? Is that significant? Um, Why not a more expensive coin? Why not a gold coin? 
In a traditional understanding of the story, if it would add drama to the story if it was a gold coin, wouldn't it? Like if it was, oh, she had nine silver coins, but she loses her gold coin. That would actually add drama. But if it was instead of um, she lost 20 bucks, it was she lost $10,000. Well, now that would add some drama to the story. She's got to find the gold coin. Um, but Jesus doesn't say that it was a gold coin. He says it was a drachma. Is that significant? Third question. Is it significant that it's one in 10? Why that number? It, it, why not one in three? That would add drama, right? If she lost one, she had three coins and she loses one, uh, one third of her money. Or why not just a woman had one coin to her name and she lost her coin? That would add drama to it if the traditional understanding is accurate. So why is it significant that it's one in 10? Next question, uh, why, is he so, why is she so frantic to find it? Have you, ever, have you ever noticed this piece about the story? She lights a lamp. So apparently she loses the coin in the middle of the day. She lights a lamp, and, uh, or sorry, in the middle of the night. She lights a lamp. She searches all through the house to find the coin she lost in the middle of the night. Why not wait until morning? Was she worried somebody's going to break into her house? Like, why not wait until there's some, some daylight to work with? Why? And then, detail in the story, she throws a party in the middle of the night. Like, can you imagine if your neighbor came over and was like, hey, Bob, found some money, let's party. Like, why, why? can we wait till morning? Like, what's going on? I'm sleeping. Uh, okay, another question. Uh, if the point of the parable is about how poor she is and how she needs the coin for survival, if that's the point, why is she willing to throw a party? Okay, so if the coin is worth 20 bucks, have you ever thrown a party for 20 bucks? Like, why throw a party that costs more than the worth of the coin in the first place? Like, that one's maybe the most obvious to me. Like, could, like why throw the party? Why spend the money? If this lady's poor, why would she? And then invite the entire village. It's a lot of people. Why, why do it? Um, and then uh, the last question I have is, why does she refer to the drachma as my coin? That's weird. You don't refer to money as uh, my dollar. You refer to it as a dollar, right? If I had a dollar, I'd say I have a dollar. I don't say I have my dollar. So is this woman obsessed with money? Is she weirdly fascinated by money? Does she personalize all of her possessions? Like, so, or does the coin mean something else to her? Is there something else going on in the story? Um, now, here's another interpretation. Um, it's radically changed how I hear this story. Uh, another interpretation. Uh, and if you study the culture a little bit, you start to learn some of this stuff. Um, th there in the first century Israel, uh, peasant women, uh, first century Israel, had a very unique engagement process. Um, a, a young man wants to propose to a young woman, uh, and he wants to marry her. He had a gift he would often give her. Um, we still do this today, right? If you propose, most, not everybody, but many people, maybe the majority of people, um, guys, if uh, you propose, you get down on one knee and you, I can't get mine off. You don't give your ring anyway. That is, the metaphor falls apart. But you give her an engagement ring. Right? So not everyone gives it, but in our culture today, we still kind of understand that like, here's a symbol of what I'm, uh, I'm professing here. Will you marry me? Here's my ring. Uh, will you take my ring? In first century peasant Israel, like poor Israel, you uh, wouldn't give a ring. Um, if you were proposing, you would give a head lace, um, kind of like, like a necklace, kind of like a head lace. So um, something like this. Uh, and the, it would be composed of 10 drachma. Why 10? Well, 10 in Jewish culture was a number of completion. 
Um, there's 10 commandments. 10 was a number of, this is all of me. You give 10 drachma, anyone can afford 10 drachma. It costs a little bit of money. It's, you know, if it's a day's, if it's a day's savings, like that's a, that's a significant amount of money, but it's not a tremendous amount of money. Uh, and you would, but you would give it as a way of saying, I want to give all of myself to you. Here's 10 drachma. The number means something. Um, it, it stood for completion. Now, Jesus tells a story. There's a lady. She has 10 silver coins. Uh, she's got 10. What is Jesus most likely referring to? Most likely, he's referring to the engagement head lace. This would be like saying she's got an engagement ring. It's got a, it's got a couple stones in it. Okay, so similar. Uh, Jesus then says that apparently the necklace either uh, it breaks or one of the coins falls off, and so she searches the house. She lights a lamp because she doesn't want to wait until the morning. Uh, she doesn't want to waste time. And then when she finds it, she throws a party. She, she's found, and then the language she uses is, I found my lost coin. My lost coin. Um, she, there's an urgency to it. Uh, I, won't, I won't ask for a show of hands, but... Um, Women, ever lose your wedding ring? <laughs> Freak out a little bit, right? Like, 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 take apart. I, uh, I once met a lady uh, not too long ago. Actually, she was telling me that she lost her ring on the beach, um, and so she she spent all weekend combing the sand of the beach trying to find her wedding ring. Um, I, I I have a friend whose wedding ring, while they were doing dishes, they she had taken it off and kind of put it on the thing and she's doing dishes and it fell into the drain and uh, went down and so they had to take apart their entire drainage system uh, to try to find freak out a little bit lost your ring freak out a little bit the ring we understand it's not about the value there is value in a ring sure but it's not about the financial value of the ring Uh, the financial value the, the the value of the ring is this ring represents us all of our hopes all of our dreams like, it, all of this is a picture of what our relationship is. Um, it's personal. It's personal. I remember the day vividly when uh, I proposed to my wife, and I um, had the ring in my pocket, and so I was, like, constantly touching it because I just want to make sure I didn't lose it. Uh, I had it in my pocket. I had this whole idea of what I was going to do and how I was going to say that had the speech I had worked on, and um, I don't think I ever got through it articulately, um, but I had this, I, my knees were sweating. I didn't even know knees could sweat at this point, but my knees were sweating. Um, but it's just, it's a, it's a big deal because this ring, uh, it's just, a, it's, it, the ring itself had some value, but it was not about the ring. It was about what it meant to us, what this meant to me and what I was saying to her. Um, personally, uh, I've learned this firsthand as I became a parent. Um, uh, so my oldest son, um, had for, for the first several years of his life, he doesn't do it anymore, but he, he would have this blanket that he would take with him everywhere. It was his blanket. Uh, what, was, what was really interesting about this blanket was uh, when he first learned, like we first learned how to talk, like he's had it since he was a baby, but when he first learned how to talk, yeah, it looked like that, actually, same, same blanket. Uh, when he first learned how to talk, he couldn't say blanket, so he would call it his ganget. Uh, ganget. And so we started calling it his ganget. It's actually a really sad day when he learned how to say blanket and that ganget and blanket are different things. Um, it was like, oh, he's growing up. Um, but he would call it his ganget. And everywhere he went, his ganget went. Uh, we went to the store. His ganget went to the store. We came to church. His ganget came to church. We went on, we went on vacation. His ganget went on vacation. Uh, during the day, he would drag that thing around. At night, he would wrap it around his, like, the side of his head 
Everywhere, we, everywhere this kid went, the ganga went. Obviously, over the course of time, the ganga, no matter how many, I mean, if your kid's wrapping it around his, up by his head or putting it up by his head, you're going to wash that thing a lot. Uh, and so we, we washed it a lot, so, so much that it was like starting to get holes in it, and it was almost see-through, and it was no longer white with little elephants on it, but it was like this like, darker, tannish color. Like it's, like it, but this blanket, so if I were to say to you, hey, um, you want to buy this blanket? <laughs> if, I, if I were to give you the blanket and say, hey, you know, this thing's got some value. Uh, would you want to buy the blanket? You would look at me like, no, you would not. I would not. You couldn't pay me to take that blanket. I'm not buying the blanket. But if you were to ask me, uh, does the blanket have worth? I'm going to say to you, absolutely. Abs- it's not for sale. Absolutely it has worth. That's my oldest child's ganget. Like, that, that, like this thing has value. Not because of how you see it. To you, it has no value. But it's because of how I see it. And the way I see it is through the, his eyes and how he sees it. And he has value. He's my boy. He's got value. You understand? I think this is Jesus' point. I think his point to these religious people who are looking at these tax collectors, these sinners, low lives, Mary Magdalene, we know what you did. Matthew, we know what you did. How dare you, Jesus, hang out with these people? How dare you surround yourself with these people? I think Jesus in this moment uh, wants them to know, I see how you see them, but do you know how God sees them? They're a drachma on his wedding band. They're like a blanket. of like, That's how God sees them. You may not see them that way. You may not see them as important. But how dare you tell, say that they're not, they should not be with me? Do you not see how God sees them? Um, we live in a world today where we still, like, we, see, we see, especially like celebrities and athletes. Here's my Tom Brady reference. Uh, we see them as more valuable than everyone else, right? If Tom Brady were to walk in to give alms, <laughs> I'd want his autograph. I would. I'd be like, I, you know, and, I, and that's, I would even understand that this is weird. I'm not asking for anyone else's autograph, but I would want Tom Brady. Like, we treat people different. If Taylor Swift walked into our church, you all would notice. We would all be like, over there. Like we would, we would notice if Tom Holland walked into this room on Easter. Some of you would swoon, uh, right? Like we, by the way, I just learned who Tom Holland was from a sermon. And somebody said, Tom Holland's famous. I had to Google him. It's uh, <laughs> True story, there is an author who writes, uh, he, there's an, uh, I think he's Dutch. Is he a Dutch author? He's got a Dutch name, English author. Uh, and he wrote a book on Jesus. And so when somebody said, Tom Holland's famous, I'm like, he is? Uh, yeah, that's a different Tom Holland. Uh, now, um, if they were to walk in the room, we, we're going to look at these people different. It's just who we, it's, I get it. This is what the Pharisees are trapped in. But that's not how God sees the world. That's what Jesus came to, to help us see. This is not how our God sees the world. Did you know that the person sitting next to you, you don't have to look around, that'd be maybe weird. You're sitting next to them though. So the person sitting next to you um, is worth enough to our God that he would be born in six inches of manure, whipped, beat. Uh, brought to a cross to die, one of the most agonizing deaths uh, in the history of the world. The the Romans were sophisticated in their torture. Uh, The person sitting next to you was worth enough to God that that, he would do that for them. 
He would do it for, for uh, Tom Brady and Taylor Swift and Tom Holland, too. He would. Um, he did. Um, but, but they are no more valuable than you. You have the same, the person sitting next to you uh, is, that's, about, that's what Jesus says. That, they're, they may look like a worthless drachma. Um, they may feel like a worthless drachma, but they have so much value to our God. That's Jesus' point. That's how much he loves them. You may right now be thinking, uh, the way I feel, I feel like a used gonget. <laughs> like, I feel like a blanket that's been drug around. If you only knew my story, if they only knew my story, if they only knew, I feel like a, like a, like a coin that's been discarded and not really, it's pretty easy to replace me. I feel replaceable. It, I think Easter Sunday breaks into that noise and reminds us this is not the story. I love that. Do you know that in a first century culture, for Mary Magdalene to be the first witness at the tomb would almost discredit the story? Women uh, in a first century understanding of the world, I'm so glad that this is not the way we understand the world anymore, but they did not take, uh, they did not take the account or the testimony of a woman seriously. So either, they're, either it actually happened that way um, or they're, they're really bad at propaganda. I love that it's Mary Magdalene that's the first at the tomb. I also, um, I, I love that we meet Mary Magdalene, this, this ordinary drachma. He tells the story right after she joins the tribe. Um, I, I love that we meet her, and in this moment, she is heartbroken. She's crying. She's, uh, all of her hopes, death feels senseless. And I imagine in this moment, she is at the tomb, and she's thinking, was it all a waste? All those laughs, all that great teaching, he's dead. Let's finish the story. John, John 20, verse 11. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned and saw, around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus says her name. Not a good story. Jesus says her name. It's like there's the resurrection of the body um, at a grand scale, uh, there's the resurrection that we all anticipate. As, as believers, we all place our hope there that this life can't be all there is. But then there are the individual little resurrections. With, when, when he says Mary, it's like she comes back to life. It's like she comes back to life. It's not an ending. It's like a whole new beginning. Um, maybe today, uh, what at least maybe one or two of you need to be reminded of or need to hear is that our God knows everything about you. Um, Jesus met her with seven demons, your seven worst secrets. Our God knows your seven worst secrets. Uh, he knows your name, and he still chooses you. I find that incredible. Um, you are a drachma on his wedding head lace. Uh, you are, uh, it's, it has to start personal. Before it goes cosmic, uh, and I'm debating what to do next week, whether we go cosmic or stay with Matthew for, like, get back into Matthew. But um, before we get into, like, the really heady, like, okay, God is God, it has to start personal. It has to start personal. 
I think actually if the church were to lock this one in, if this is how we saw the world, if, um, I think things change. I think if the church sees the world this way, if we see the, can you imagine if every single person you ever, you, you meet, if every single person you meet, you treated them uh, not like an ordinary drachma, but you treated them how God would treat them. Like you treated them, how, you see them how God sees them. Can you imagine how, uh, if every person checking out groceries, as you're scanning, um, you know, we often barely make eye contact, but can you imagine if you treated them as though they're a celebrity? Which, imagine how much that changes things. It really does. It would change things. Imagine if the guy ripping your ticket at the theater, um, if you treated the guy ripping your ticket at the theater as though he was a rock star. Like, can I get your autograph? I mean, like, I, I don't, that'd be weird probably, but like, it would ch- it ch- can you imagine if the waitress who's overstressed and, and tired and hustling from table to table, can you imagine if you treated the waitress at your, uh, like they were Taylor Swift, Tom Brady. I think if Christians started to look through the, through, look at our world through the lens of our God, more often we'd start to see beauty in places we've only barely even made eye contact. I think, it, I think if we were to begin to do this, all of us, like if we, myself included, I think West Michigan changes. I think Grand Rapids changes. I think Byron Center changes. Um, you may feel like an ordinary drachma. I have a secret for you. I know a secret about you. You are worth more to our God than you can even begin to comprehend. Um, what if we allowed that to drive everything? Uh, our mission statement you saw as you walked in the doors, it says helping people find their way back to God. Um, we truly believe people matter to God. All people matter to God. Um, we believe it. Uh, this is how the first Christians talked about the ramifications of Easter um, the ripples of Easter, of resurrection. Uh, uh, Paul, one of the very first followers of Jesus, we'll let him have the, the last words, uh, but Paul um, goes on an epic rant. Uh, and you can call it a lot of things. It's a speech, it's a sermon. I think it's a rant. Uh, he goes on a rant about resurrection to a church in Corinth that he planted. He wants them to understand just the power of resurrection. And so uh, he wraps up his rant by saying this. I think this is Beautiful. He says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. From the universal to the personal, Resurrection gives life meaning. Not just death meaning. Resurrection gives life meaning. It's why we can stand firm. Let nothing move us. Give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because it's not in vain. The invitation today is to live as though that's true. Um, So many of you, maybe all of us at some level, uh, are going to leave here today and we're gonna finish a day doing whatever we have in our agendas to do today. Um, you're gonna go home and take a nap or you're gonna go home and have a good lunch. Hopefully, maybe some of you will get to spend some time today with people you love. The invitation today is to take those little moments and to see those people that you get to see today through the eyes of our God. They're so valuable. Enjoy it. Eat good food. Calories don't count on Easter. We know this. Um, Eat good food. Uh, Laugh hard. Play together. That is the invitation because the tomb is empty. And if the tomb is empty, then all things live. Um, Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord.
Um, we thank you that uh, we, we have at the very center of our story, Lord, your story, and at the very center of all of our brokenness is this beautiful story of redemption. Uh, Lord, at the, at the center of all of the pain and the death and the loss and things that truly, um, Lord, I'm reminded of the words of Paul when he says, when we grieve, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Lord, there are many things to grieve about. It's not we shouldn't grieve. Lord, there are things that we do grieve. There are things that we do mourn and they're sad. And Lord, we are so grateful that when we grieve, you have reminded us of this beautiful, deep hope. And so, Lord, would would you help us to live as though this is true? We know intellectually it's true, but, Lord, would you help us to see it as true? Help help it to shape how we see the world. Uh, Lord, would you take these dry bones, um, this this dry, stale life, and would you breathe back into it? Lord, would you you call all things to live again? We pray this, Jesus, in your name. And everybody said, amen. Would you please stand? As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.